I'm reliving the same day over and over. Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? Welcome to the 20th episode, I was going to say 200th, 20th episode of Zero Hour Strikes, the show that covers DC's 1994 crossover event, Zero Hour Crisis in Time. Every issue, we did that. Every tie-in, we did that. Every zero issue, that's where we're at. I'm Siskoid. I'm Bess. And in this episode, we do embark on that last phase of the project, uh, which is those zero issues, and we'll be talking about the four Batman zero issues to see what's changed and how the DC Universe proceeds forward. A new era, Bass. Yeah, it's exciting, isn't it? And we're starting off with Batman, so yeah. Yeah, we haven't done Batman in a while, because like we did like some Batman issues really early on, so I felt like this should be first. I may come to regret that decision, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, yeah, really, you think? You think? Uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I do have, you know what, you know, Batman fatigue is a thing, and I don't read a whole lot of uh, new comics, but um, I recently did, for my blog, I did a live blog experiment where I read every issue of um, Future State. So all yeah. of those, you know, the future of the DC Universe. And there were so many bad books in there. And I did them all in a row. And it's, I was so fatigued by that. It's like, there's just too much Batman material, people. I don't know who's reading all the Batman stuff. It's too much. Batman is pretty much the, uh, the vanilla of this DC Comics cake. <laughs> it's in there and it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, and it's very vanilla flavor. In a yeah, I, maybe that's what the show is going to be kind of like. Let's go right into it. We'll do uh, all four titles. We start with Batman number zero. It came out that first week. It's by Doug Mensch, Mike Manley, and Joseph Rubenstein. It's called Creature of the Night. Here's my synopsis. As he reflects on his history, Batman reclaims his role as Gotham's Avenger and tracks and takes down a lethal mugger. I'm done. <laughs> that's pretty much it so uh before we get into the comic itself i want to talk about that cover uh because all the covers yeah. are going to have this dressing which is uh metallic ink just like zero hour number zero to make them stand out you know as part of that event and the zero hour crosshairs or whatever that logo is in the top corner and the tagline is now the beginning of tomorrow and it used to be the end of today uh, but the cover itself is a pin-up pose of well batman batman on rooftops signal behind him uh do you like this cover uh it's okay it's kind of reminiscent of uh the batman animated series type look you know where batman is on a rooftop there's the bat signal in in the background you know it's a classic batman type pose um the cape is kind of weird in the uh in the cover it seems too long oh yeah the back of it is kind of like wispy where it's kind of turning it it's like it's melding with the fog or something maybe that's the yeah yeah not sure what that is but uh other than that i mean it's batman as a gargoyle you know it's <laughs> batman as a we're used to it it's simply batman it's the gray and blue batman which is uh for that time kind of kind of special i'm thinking because the gray and black was uh was they only got black and black a little a year or two later or something i think okay so you know when we came really black uh, that's still ahead. So this is the this is the look. This is the actual look. Okay. It's the look I prefer, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very reminiscent of the uh, the late seventies Batman. Yeah. Well, he's, it's still that Batman. There's never really been even Crisis didn't really do much to him. And that's the question here. Okay, Batman 
Number zero, we're going to get an origin story again, again. Yeah. And what's changed? You know, that's the question get, getting into these books is what has changed? What has zero hour changed? What has the reboot of the universe, what kind of disruption or anomaly have been caused to, well, hopefully fix the characters, quote unquote. Uh, and in this case, the one big difference is that his parents' killer was never caught. So Joe Chill doesn't properly exist, and uh, so he becomes like a symbol for all criminals. Rather than, you know, like in the, the original history, not only did he ex was he a person, like a, a specific person, but he was caught, he reformed. So there's like stories to be told about Batman showing empathy or sympathy or compassion for his parents' killer. I mean, those stories have been told. So my question is, is this better? This is my question to you. Is this a better take on Batman that he does not know and will never know who did it? Well, I think yes. I mean, just for, you know, character development. If you can't put a face on the criminal, all criminals become the killer of his parents, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a better motivation for Batman. Honestly, I think we, as the reader... I think we want to know who the killer of his parents, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter who killed his parents and not knowing kind of keeps us intrigued if he's ever going to find the killer of, you know, so, so I like it. I like that the, the killer, the, the parent killer is never really known. It's way better than the other end of the scale, which is like what movies have tried to do where the Joker oh, yeah. killed his parents, <laughs> Yes. That I really... I would say that's... that's no, yeah, that's no. the worst. Like Gotham tried to do it with the League of Assassins or something, which... Yeah. Because TV shows today need, like, that conspiracy angle, and so his parents can't yeah. just have been killed in a random mugging, uh, which probably takes away from the character as well. So, yes, I agree. Like, the stories of Joe Chill have been told. They were of interest. Now, in this new era, he's not relevant anymore. So yeah. making it like this and making it part of his psychology, actually, I agree. It makes sense. It's interesting. And the other change I would say, it's not really a change, but a take on the origin here is that Doug Mensch frames the story more in how Batman was molded by his parents' uh, lives, yeah. Yeah. their lives, rather than their deaths. And as surrogate parents as well, if we we take Alfred and into account, yeah, I think that's a good take on an origin that we've seen hundreds of hundreds of times. To say his parents or the people around him made him a good person in the same way that we say that about Clark Kent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he's not defined by the destruction of Krypton. He's defined by the good parents he found here as adoptive parents. So to say that of Batman yeah. that his parents were good people and taught him some values that he brought with him, I think is a, a good take. Yeah. And I love the way Thomas Wayne is rich beyond, you know, mm -hmm. he's loaded, but he's still a practicing doctor. I mean, he still goes to work because he likes to help people. That's why he does it. And that's a great example of motivation and how Bruce Wayne would benefit from having, you know, or, or we benefit from seeing this from Bruce's dad. I also like how the connection between Alfred and young Bruce is almost immediate. Mm. You know, uh, Alfred is good at everything. You know, he's an actor. He's a he's a cook. He can fix cars. He can fix stuff. And all the while Alfred is talking in this comic uh, at one point, Bruce is just looking at him like he's the greatest guy ever. 
And I really like that. Yeah, that's a good point. As it makes him like a role model, or we don't think yeah. of Alfred that way necessarily. You know, it's like he's the assistant. But to young Bruce, he's a surrogate father. He's, you know, it is interesting. And I, so I think Mench did a good job of it, even though it's an origin that we've seen countless times. There's not a lot of change. And I, I sometimes I like, I, I hit up on words and I go, hmm, you know, like, I wish you hadn't used that word because it sort of points out the weakness of the script, which is like, he uses words like, as usual, and nothing has changed. These are phrases actually in the comic. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. nothing much has changed. You know, Batman is a sacred cow, and uh, you can't do too much to him, which is why his history has, has remained more or less intact, give or take, yeah. uh, you know, across since maybe 1970 or something, you know. Yeah, exactly. The comic elaborates on Bruce Wayne's upbringing and, and how he was while he was young. I love that he basically hacked into, created anomalies so that the people from, because uh, he's an orphan, he was su supposed to go to the state, probably would have took him in and, you know, and he, he forged documents and stuff. So they just lost track of him. He disappeared as a person so he could stay with Alfred. And, and I kind of like this stuff because it's all questions I used to ask myself. Like, why, how is Alfred his adopted dad? And how would that work? And and why is young Bruce all alone? And who raised him? And what did he do? And and we kind of elaborated on that in in the comic. And I, even though I've seen this a million times and it's basically Batman Begins, I kind of enjoyed it. This is pre-Batman Begins. So you, you can tell it took parts of like this time in history where, you know, it's not just this time in history. These stories have been told where Batman is, you know, Bruce, young Bruce Wayne has gone out into the world and learned all these skills. And, you know, but of course, Batman Begins does it in a way like the Batman 89 didn't care about this stuff. You know, it's. No, no, absolutely yeah. not. One other thing I, I did enjoy is uh, Matches Malone. Matches Malone, I love it. As soon as I saw the matches, matches were a clue. Uh, I sort of thought of Matches Malone. Of course, he uses it, you know, in the story. I love that alternate identity. It's, and it's really, it's Batman as a proper detective, this story. It's a very simple, yeah. the villain is, is you know, just a, a, a normal human, not costumed killer. But Batman has to do a lot of the legwork, and I like to see Batman as the detective. Oh, yeah, big time. I was hoping, because I didn't know. I didn't know this was going to happen. It's my first time reading Zero Hour and and the Zero Issues, and, and I was wondering. I knew it was Tim Drake Robin time, so I was wondering where we were in the Batman sense. Was it punchy Batman? Was it, you know, angry Batman? Was it the goddamn Batman? But this is Detective Batman, and I, I, I really do enjoy it. Yeah, and I, the other thing that I liked about this is that even though Bruce Wayne was Batman during Zero Hour, he'd just come back. He'd just gone through Nightfall or whichever, or, you know, yeah. Night Quest, Night, Night This and That, but um, Asbats had just been deposed. So he's really, in this issue, he's reclaiming the Batcave, and, and you can see, like, the lab stuff has all been wrecked and pushed aside to make a place for a, a shooting gallery which yeah. revolts him, you know? And so you can see from that, that changeover, the differences, like what we just had, the terrible Azrael Batman. And <laughs> Batman is back and he's, he's kind of looking back at, at this mistake that he made, you know, in choosing Jean-Paul Valley to take his place. So I like all of that stuff. It, it, there is a, 
the dialogue is very overwrought and noir. And, well, I say oh, yeah. dialogue, but I mean monologue or whatever, the narration. So we've got a lot of, you know, making this sound like it's a holy crusade because he's talking about his demons and his demons are his villains. And I feel that's a bit unfair to Catwoman who's in the shot. But <laughs> the <laughs> grotesque <laughs> demon. Sorry, Catwoman. I don't think. Yeah. But it is that kind of... <laughs> Frank Miller kind of dialogue going on or, you know, that narration, that noir, that overwrought the city. Um, and I just saw yeah. uh, Frank Miller's The Spirit recently. Okay. I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing this myself, but I've <laughs> never seen it. And it's like, the, the city is my mistress. It's like, oh, you know, that's very much this Batman. Yeah. I don't think it's The Spirit much, but it is this Batman. So, Yeah, there's a lot of references to Gotham being hell at night, and he's being this dark angel in right. this dark. There's a lot of that going on. And, uh, yeah, it kind of makes everything heavier and, and very 90s, actually. So Okay, so next up is The Shadow of the Bat. You guessed it, number zero. It's by Alan Grant and Brett Blevins. As Batman reflects on his history again, he tracks and stops the Stone Brothers, a couple of professional hitmen, and meanwhile, some kids who committed a robbery think he's coming for them, and their fear makes them surrender the minute they see him. That's, that's all that happens. I mean, once there's the origin story, and I don't have to recap that, there's very little left, you know, each time. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and this is basically the same reflection yeah. But with different crooks. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the cover first. Let's get that out of the way. Uh, what do you think of this one? By I think it's uh, Brian Stelfreeze, isn't it? Yeah, Brian Stelfreeze did the covers for Shadow of the Bat for a while there. So Well, it's, it's stylized. You know, he has this light coming from below type thing going on. And, and it's interesting in, the li in a lighting sense. And it's very stylized. But once again, it's one of those classic Batman things, you know. Where Batman is in the darkness and you see him, but you don't see him. And the shadow behind Batman isn't really looking like Batman. It looks like the, you know, the, the twisted logo from Shadow of the Bat. That's eh, fine. Oh, yeah, that is what it is. It is the, that that shadow. Yeah, Brian Selfreeze is like, it, it makes him look like maybe he did some uh, trading cards, but it's painterly. They made it so that the Shadow of the Bat was... More or less like the, not prestige, because that's an actual format, but, you know, the prestige series where the paper would be a little better, the the cover would be painted. Yeah. There's uh, more demon imagery in this one. Batman is the angelic demon in the hellish Gotham. It's the same kind of, like, different writer, but it's the same sort of narration. It's the same origin story. It's repetitive yeah. as hell. There's a weird bit where he was an FBI analyst for six weeks. When he was like, yeah, that was that was kind of fun <laughs> for a second. He worked for the FBI for a while. I mean, the whole origin stuff we've just read. It's absurd because yeah. it's the same beats, it's the same moments. It's told in the same way, except for like these, like a bit like the FBI thing. Why not section this off into parts? You know, one issue tells the story of his childhood. One issue tells his teens. I don't know, but this is uh, a quite a uh, disappointment. In the yeah. story sense. Of course, like there, there's a different story on the crime, you know, the present day story. But even here, it's repetitive for older Batman fans because Alan Grant's kind of doing a riff on Frank Robbins's um, famous The Batman Nobody Knows from Batman number 250. I, I understand is like a 20 year old story at this point. But, okay. but we've seen it. 
uh, as uh, Legends of the Dark Knight on the animated Batman series, the title of an episode. Okay. It was on the direct-to-DVD animated Gotham Knight as uh, Have I Got a Story for You. All of these cartoons were later, obviously, but still, I, I've seen the story of the people who talk about Batman. They have different opinions. They're imagining Batman in, as a monster, as a robot, as a, a normal man, as, you know. Yeah, yeah. The better stories, you actually see these versions in their mind. Here, they're just talking about it, and they're kind of spooking each other out until, you know, Batman just shows up in the alley And they're ready to surrender already just because they talked themselves out of the crime, basically. So it's, yeah. it's not a bad take. But, you know, I've read it and seen it many times, the story of people talking about Batman in that way. So I do like that it illustrates the whole point of his, like, weaponizing fear, putting fear into the hearts yeah. of men. You know, that's it is a representation of that. And we see how it actually works in the day-to-day for the lower-level criminals. I, I do like that. I don't mind that we, uh, once in a while, have a little, you know, a little reminder that Batman is, uh, at best, a legend, and at, at worst, he's basically fear. They all have their take. They all have uh, their reasons for fearing him, and they're all true at the end. So I don't, I don't really mind that. But, of course, it has to be... I'd like to see it come from you know, super-powered people. Because mm. I'm sure that Batman strikes fear in the heart of many uh, super-powered people, even if they are super-powered. So, you know, regular crooks being afraid of Batman, well, yeah. <laughs> so The one point they do make that is interesting, that I haven't seen before, is that uh, they see the yellow oval around the bat as a sign of danger. You know, yellow being what you put on a sign to say dangerous, to say radioactive, to say, you know, it's that yeah. caution. Uh, and um, the fact that the yellow oval, is when you see it, is like somehow sparks something in their heads that is like the bat is fearsome in a primal way. But who's really afraid of bats? You know, little girls with long yeah. hair or something. You know, it's like who's yeah. afraid of bats? But seeing the, the yellow oval, when you know that it represents Batman, is uh, it tweaks something in their heads, in a modern mind, that warning, danger. So I like that because I've never actually seen that notion before. And I will use this moment to say, bring back the damn yellow oval, people. And you know what? It's a target. I mean, in this comic book, he gets shot point blank. Right in the yellow oval. And he takes it. No, no, he wants you to take it. Like, he's got, like, a metal plate right there or something. Because it stops bullets. Exactly. So, I, I love that part, too. I really enjoyed that. You know, he got shot right in the oval. And <laughs> he didn't miss at all. The, the guy didn't miss at all. I mean, it's, like, four shots right in the, in the logo. And he still gets punched out. Yeah. Today, the Batman of today, or you know, soon after this, when he starts losing the oval, and it used to be black on gray, you know, like the, we'll see it in Legends of the Dark Knight, and you know, it's like uh, yeah. year one, he's got like the black on gray. Black on gray is still visible. But these days, they're going black on black, and it's like, why are you even wearing it? Who even sees it? You work at yeah. night, you dress in black, your logo is as black as the rest of the suit. And it's just like a seam or something. You know, it's just like a stitch. Absurd. Yeah. Ridiculous. That's the problem with doing movies where Batman is always the new thing. If there's one place that Batman could have had this huge yellow logo on his on his chest was in Batman v Superman. Because he was this 
older Batman, angry Batman that struck fear. But, you know, that's the one place where it was basically gray on gray or black on black and we didn't see it. The thing is, if you don't you can't have this fearsome or or this logo or this chest plate that that generates fear if we never see it. So if it's a new Batman, I can understand that black on black, you know, he wants to be stealthy. But older Batman or established Batman, he would have that yellow thing on his chest. No problem. People would surrender to the yellow chest. Exactly. Anyway, uh, and this is more of a punchy Batman. You were you were you know, earlier referencing a yeah. more punch him up Batman, and uh, Brett Blevins does like a three page fight here where you can see the acrobatics, you can see the punching, you can see, you know he's very agile. So that's a pretty good fight for what it is. Yes, it's a very uh, Nightwing type fight. Mm, yes, yes, using acrobatics. To do it. Now, yeah. let me ask you this question because I should have asked it after we talked about Batman. Like, this is the first issue that comes out after Zero Hour. It's a jumping on point. For some, it'll be a jumping off point, but for, it's supposed to be a jumping on point. You got interested in this event, zero issues. It's like a fresh start for everyone. Okay, I'm a new reader and I'm going to pick up this run of Batman or not based on that zero issue. So, We've seen Batman and Shadow of the Bat, but let's talk about Batman first before we go to promo break. Yeah. Batman, based on what you read, because it's going to be this uh, creative team, would you have kept reading Batman based on this? Batman, I would say yes. Batman Zero was just enough, different enough, or interesting enough to make me want to pick it up again. Okay. There's also all this thing where Alfred is gone. We don't really know if... Robin's gonna still be his sidekick. There's a lot going on. Batman is is very much introspective, so it's it was I think more interesting. Okay, so you were intrigued by Batman number zero. Batman zero, I would okay. say yes. Uh, if you ask the same question for Shadow of the Bat, I do. In this case, I would say unfortunately no. Just seeing people talk about how Batman scares them really doesn't do it for me. It's just not enough. This is one that's hard to to really pigeonhole based on one issue because Shadow of the Bat was more like a Legends of the Dark Knight where it's going to be different arcs by different people. Is this really representative of what you would get from Shadow of the Bat? No, not even. And also because we read Batman, it's especially, you know, especially disheartening that it's the same material, you know, just retold. Yeah. Uh, one week later. So mm, I would say that this is not a great look for Shadow of the Bat either. Personally, I was already reading both books and I kept on reading both books. It's There wasn't enough of a change. I was already in my, what Shag would call the Batman phase, which is to say I was reading all the Batman titles mm -hmm. at that time. So there you go. Okay, we'll take a short break and then we come back. We'll talk about Legends of the Dark Knight and Detective Comics. Stick around. There's something like 115,000 English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? Two guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. 
Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires. Aliens. Dinosaurs. Alien dinosaurs. There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird for our purposes yes so tune in to the weird warrior podcast today do it that's an order yes sir don't call me sir i work for a living but we're not getting paid for this Dang. well i'm max and i'm rich and we're going to be bringing you the weird warriors podcast where we will promise to make war no more you have stuck around and we are back to talk about two more <laughs> batman titles hopefully telling different stories Hopefully. Hopefully. So next up is Legends of the Dark Knight came out the third week after Zero Hour. And um, it has a cover by Joe Quesada. And interior is by... There actually is no credit for the main story, but it is Archie Goodwin. I have it on good authority. Archie Goodwin, who is editor, wrote the connective tissue of this. And the art is by Vince Giarano. And it features pages from future issues by all sorts of writers and artists. It's called Viewpoint. Here's the synopsis. Publishing Magnet... Magnate? Yeah, it's not a magnet. Yeah, I think it's Magnate. Magnate? Publishing Magnate, uh, Randolph Spire, has called writers to his castle outside Gotham because he wants them to write about Batman for his Viewpoint magazine so he can take down a legend. They come up with various versions of the Bat, but nothing definitive because not enough is known about Batman. He throws them out, but Batman pays him a visit and arrests him for having bombed rival business executives. And that's the... <laughs> but of course, we see a bunch of pages, like when people are telling their version of Batman to him. Yeah. We're seeing pages from future issues of Legends of the Dark Knight by different yeah. artists, and the dialogue or whatever, the text has been changed to be those writers writing about Batman instead. It's like the lettering is not the same, but I'm actually, I'll tell you this, I, what I'm most uh, impressed by, I guess, by this clip show in reverse, uh, is how many issues were in the pipeline. Because the last one, the, the one that is most future-ish of, of the issues... Mm -hmm. Presented yeah. is uh, Legend seventy six, which is in October of ninety five, which is a full year away. So they've oh, got wow. they've got pages from an issue that will only come out in a year. So I would imagine that the way Legends of the Dark Knight worked is that since they were all like these confined arcs or you know mm -hmm. one off issues or two issues, three four, they were all working at the same time. Like they probably had many stories ready. You know, by the time that they came out, they'd been on the desk for. For a long time. Yeah, I didn't know that. So I kind of appreciate all of that now. I mean... If you didn't see it through that lens, um, what did you think of this format? I kind of figured that these were going to be different stories told differently. Just because of the style that Batman was presented in. I kind of figured that's what we were going for. But when I read the story, I really actually just read it like a story. I didn't really get 
the villain in this. Uh, what's his name again? William Randolph Hearst. No, no, that's what's he, what he's supposed to be. Randolph Spire is the name. But, yeah, yeah. But he's obviously William Randolph Hearst. He's like a crazy publisher, super rich, has a castle. He's Citizen Kane is what he is. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I didn't really get why. I don't get his motivation. I don't get why he wants to bring down the legend. I, it's just, To me, that's a stupid motivation. I don't really get it. So I was like, all right, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to, you know, look past this stupid thing. He's like, um, he's in publishing and he's just, he's a severe artist. Really? He's like, he's just well, going to, he's taken down politicians. He's taken down movie stars. He, you know, he's digging up. I mean, he's a super villain version of terrible journal, gossip journalist or something. Yeah. Yeah. He's like super tabloid man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I get that. I mean, it's just that I, <laughs> it's, I don't know. I think it's kind of weak as a motivation. I did enjoy all the artwork. Uh, that's the kind of stuff I did like. And I mean, how this guy, he's basically presented as a manga. I mean, he has these lines and this, this he's too intense and it's, I really dug that. I was like, all right, there's there's a clash of something going on here. But yeah, I really did enjoy all the different arts and all the different Batmans. And this is another take on how people see the Batman. Yes. What he is and how he fights and what he might be and and all that stuff. And I, I kind of enjoyed how this is like a graphic way or a it's delivered with the art more than just the words. And that I really liked. It's an interesting way to repurpose work that's going to show up later. And in this case, it acts as an ad for what's to come. It's like very literally yeah. stick with us this year because this is what you're going to get. You're going to get Mike Zek. You're going to get uh, Tim Sale. Well, actually, the Tim Sale one is, uh, I think, was a special. It's a Halloween special. It's not part of the series itself. Uh, you know, we got Joe Staten on The Joker. We got, anyways. So you've got like very different stories that are going to be told. Yeah. And we don't know what the story is going to be. So it's not an ad for the story or for the writer, but it is an ad for the artist, the basic premise that they're going to approach. Yeah. Vince Girano, who did the frame tale, is, you, you call it manga, but it's he's very 90s. It's, it's, I mean, he's in that style. He's, you know, all the line work that's, you're talking about Rob Liefeld. You're talking about, you know, all the angsty lines right there. He's that type. Although his... Uh, his character's hands have a much more like claw-like. They're very oh, yeah. claw-like. So he's good at making Batman look like a demon. But my favorite in here is probably the Mike Zek where Batman seems to infiltrate a prison. And that's probably the best looking Batman in there for me. But it's a very classic look. American style cartoon. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that style. I mean, that's closer to what we're used to. It's not too noir. It's. I mean, I've read all these stories. Because I was reading Legends of the Dark Knight all through this. I, I I can't, you know, like the really memorable ones were probably from the first couple years. And this is after that, where I'm looking at the, the pages and I'm going, I don't really remember that story. You know, it's like I kind of vaguely remember that that artist worked on it, but I can't remember the story necessarily. I remember the Joker story. Like the Joker has rehabilitated or he's, he's living a normal life as Joker. And something reminds him that he was the the Joker, and uh, he goes back to the dark side. But he's he's kind of like you know flesh colored faced through most of that story. I remember that, but not 
not the rest, Batman versus werewolves or, you know, all this stuff. You don't remember uh, Batman versus the weird superhero with who looks like some kind of a alternate Batman with metal stuff on his, you don't remember that guy? No, not really. No? Oh. I, I think the best days were behind it. Uh, as far as that book goes, like most of the memorable stories for me were before this point, were before Zero Hour. Ah, uh, well. So would you, based on this comic, is Legends of the Dark Knight something you would be interested in picking up and keep reading? Just because we have this, because uh, at the end of the comic, we have the credits for all the artists that are coming up and all the, the writers that are coming up for the series. I might have at least bought a couple. I, I would have continued buying it just to give me those, these little alternate stories. I've always been a fan of like Elseworlds and stuff like that and alternate universes and stuff like that. So I, I probably would have continued buying. Okay. And it's it's very stylized also in the art. So I, I enjoy just the different art. So yeah, I probably would have. Okay. Uh, well, then let's look at the last one. Detective Comics number zero by Chuck Dixon, Graham Nolan, and Scott Hanna. It's called Choice of Weapons. As Batman reflects on his history, <clears throat> uh, this time <laughs> mostly on how he crafted the identity of the Batman and where he got all those wonderful toys, he tracks and stops a gang of kidnappers. He defeats the ringleader by staring him into surrender. Let's look at that cover. This time Robin is on it. He is not in the yeah. comic per se, but uh, it seems to promise that Robin is, is still in the game, at least. Yeah, and this cover is really reminiscent. It really looks, well, not, not in the style, but it's, once again, this classic Batman and Robin shooting down from the top of a building, the bat signal in the, in the background. It's not scary Batman, it's really superhero Batman and Robin. And Robin, I mean, when Robin is there, I do like that the, I just noticed that the, the building uh, on the right, whatever, the architect had skulls <laughs> well, yeah, uh, sculpted into the top of it, only in Gotham. <laughs> well, I mean, it's probably, it's probably to, you know, some superstition type stuff like gargoyles, you know, that are there to, to scare off evil, uh, evil demons and stuff like that. That's why they used to put these things on there. You know, you have scary gargoyles to scare off scary things. It made sense in the middle ages. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Gotham yeah. is hell. It is apparently. So finally we get a flashback an extended flashback that isn't the same old thing. There are those moments. We It does like start with the death of the parents. It does end with like recent events. But the meat of it is actually completely different. I think Chuck Dixon wrote a completely different story from what we saw in the first uh, couple ones. Because it's about, okay, now I've got my skills. Now I'm ready to go on that mission. What do I do with it? And how do I become the Batman, how Batman came about, how he got that first car, how he got all those those high-tech weapons that we wonder, where, where did, isn't there like a paper trail for this? It's all explained in that, that sequence. So I this was much more interesting because this isn't the stuff that we hear about much. Again, Batman Begins did poach from this, but, you know, they don't talk about this as much as, you know, like a bad guy ripping the pearls off 
Mama Wayne, you know. You refuse to say her name. Say her name. <laughs> no. It's Martha. Don't say that name. Stop it. <laughs> of course, also, what this does is that though Alfred has left in the continuity, he's left temporarily the Batman through all the, the stuff with Asbats and, you know, I can't really blame him. But he uh, is in, of course, he's in the flashbacks because he was there. And it's, yeah. And he's got some great lines, he's got some great dry wit. It's like, can I get you anything more? Uh, maybe a note from your analyst or, you know, so, you know, it's, he's got like that. He doesn't really bow down to Bruce Wayne. You know, he's his, he's kind of his dad in a way. But he, like, that dry wit is really well represented. He feels like the one, the witty. Alfred from the from the animated series again, which was during this time. Oh, yeah. So it's great to see Alfred in a role and to have those kinds of lines. Uh, so I feel again this is a highlight of like the foursome that that we're covering today. Definitely, this is my my favorite. Also, I mean, it feels like an origin story, but it really isn't. It's uh, an elaboration on because I mean the whole origin is basically half a page and now we're really going into the the rest of what was going on that was refreshing that was very nice it was fun to see there's a lot of elaboration on how on his relationships with the robins on relationship with alfred if i was going to pick up this one and you know being sad that alfred's not in there anymore I would probably be smiling, you know, just because he's in the flashbacks. And I'd probably be thinking right now, Alfred will be back. I mean, you don't sell a, a well-written Alfred like this, you know, if he's not coming yeah. back. I mean, he has to come back. I mean, it's also using that fear motif, just like Shadow of the Bat did, where yeah. it's the same lesson. But it's much cooler here, where you see him stare down a guy. And the guy is, you know, the, the kidnapper is... Uh, He's got a gun to the little girl's head. And then for no reason, like through no action, Batman doesn't even say anything. He decides yeah. to surrender. He he calls it quits. He, he panics and he falls to his knees and Batman still gives him a kick. <laughs> so there's a, <laughs> yeah, this is a much cooler moment. Really, if you're going to burn one of these, burn Shadow of the Bat. Like Shadow of the Bat should not exist. Because it's, <laughs> yeah. all the things it says were said in Batman and Detective. So it's kind of yeah. useless. It's the it's the Dunsel. It's the dud. I mean, in this one, if you were watching the animated series, Gordon is reminiscent. You know, it's the same Gordon. It's the same Bullock because Gordon and Bullock are in there. And it's the same Batman. You know, the Batman who will kick this guy in the chest because, you know, he kidnapped children. But he will smile at the children and make him feel safe and that's the batman we all love i think yeah i think that's the more the richer batman is not just one note and it's more interesting also i love that ending not just the the climax but the ending because are these kids traumatized is it like the question that's being asked by the cops gordon <laughs> gordon says for some it stays with them all their lives and he's looking at batman so this seems to yeah. imply that gordon in this continuity post zero zero hour whatever knows who Batman is. Uh, and I don't know if it was an issue. You know, I don't know if it was, if, if people wondered, if you already did know, did not know, but post Zero Hour, whatever, he seems to know because we understand from this moment. It also implies that, yeah, trauma can motivate a person. It doesn't necessarily just mean they have to collapse in on themselves. So uh, Batman is kind of a beacon for hope for the people who have suffered trauma in a way. 
Not, yeah, not that I would recommend his lifestyle. I don't think it's necessarily healthy, but it did not destroy him. Maybe the point. I didn't think of it that way, but I did enjoy that ending also, just because there's this sliver of hope in that ending. And and even though Batman is dark and is fearsome, it's just the bad guys who are afraid of him, not regular people. And even if there are like lightning strikes and everything around him at the end, it's still a sliver of this. There is good in Gotham. It's not just hell. And I really enjoyed that one. Detective Comets, I, I would have picked up again and again. Yeah, it ends not on this is hell. It says, yes, it's a cold, hard place, but it's his home. And and that's yeah. why he needs to protect it. Because at the beginning of the issue, like at the end of Batman, which I think the two connected ones are really Batman and Detective. They kind of flow in to one another more or less, you know. And yeah. the one issue was saying was that okay, Batman's back, but does he need to be back? And does he still have that resolve that he used yeah. to have now that he's healed from a broken back and, and lost his friend and, you know, all of this? So at the end of this issue, he has to say, he has to recommit. He has to say, yeah, I'm in it to win it, you know? And that's what they do. And it's, it's so it starts with Gotham being a hell on earth and it ends with him accepting that he feels at home there, that it is where he lives, that, that where this is where he comes from. And this is where he needs to be and to keep doing what he does. So, yeah, I think those two Absolutely. issues also tell two paths of an origin, really. So, yeah, yeah. Th- those are the two to keep. And the other two, I felt like... Yeah, we could chuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, they're also they're the two that, were, you know, they were not connected to Zero Hour. They did not have a tie-in because that's not the nature of the, the, those series. They're, they're sort of samplers. Yeah. They're sort of uh, anthologies. Really, so they yeah. they didn't really fit into continuity, and maybe whatever writers were put on those prod, like you have to do a zero issue, they just threw it at somebody. I mean, Legends of the Dark Knight was written by the editor, <laughs> so they didn't really yeah. have anyone to do it. So yeah, you know, <laughs> I feel it's like everything's got to be zero, or else you skip a month. I think only the Vertigo stuff didn't do that. So I agree. Detective for me was the winner in this case and Batman number zero was second. And then the other two were not, not necessarily useful. I mean, very slim uh, in terms of stories, not a lot. Once you take out the origins and the. Exactly. And, and I mean, one of them was interesting in the style, but brought nothing to the table. And the other one just was just a repeat or almost of a better story. So. All right. Well, we'll uh, take a short break, and when we return, your feedback on our previous episode. Batman Nightcast is back with new episodes and a new mission. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. The new Nightcast chronicles the Dark Knight Detective's greatest adventures from our favorite comic book creators. What a novel approach, talking about the comics we actually enjoy. I know, right? Highlights from this bold new era of Batman Nightcast include... The Joker's Laughing Fish. The Saga of Ra's al Ghul. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yes. Okay. Batman vs. the Man-Bat. And the first appearance of villains like Clayface 3 and the Ventriloquist. Plus more great stories by the likes of Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Alan Grant and Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Irv Novick. Don Newton. Doug Munch. Dick Sprang. Max Allen Collins. No, what? Just messing with you. Wasn't funny. Batman Nightcast, every month from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Let's 
Letters Lost in Time! Letters Lost in Time! Excerpts from your comments on our coverage of Zero Hour Number Zero. This was a big one. So first, let's talk about that scene of Zatanna and other heroes dreaming reality back into being that I misremembered as coming from this story. So a number of listeners chimed in with possible sources. My thanks to Matthew Prime, Michael Bailey, Mike Zumo, Nick Vector, Diablo Frank, James Simpson, and Rob McCarthy for trying. And Bailey, of course, had it first because it's a Superman story. It's Adventures of Superman number 522, where Zatanna cast a spell to rebuild Metropolis after Luthor destroyed it, which was in fact the state it was in, in during Zero Hour. Uh, it's a story that was told some seven months after Zero Hour, but happened immediately after Zero Hour. So basically, when we're going to come back, we're going to see some Superman books eventually, and Metropolis is yeah. going to be fine. Was it rebooted with Zero Hour? No, there's an untold tale. And, you know, in seven months or so, they tell it, and Zatanna and other heroes dream Metropolis back into being or with some changes or, you know, like a redesign. So it happened... As a result of Zero Hour, it's just not told during Zero Hour. That explains my my whole brain snafu there. The other mystery oh. solved is the whole thing with the first woman killed by man. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. It apparently figured prominently in Wonder Woman's origin back then. Uh, the goddess Gaia took the souls of women killed in prehistory and reincarnated them as Amazons. So uh, what we're really seeing is Hippolyta and Diana's souls getting killed, and it could have been clearer with the timeline. You've got a timeline, it says Amazon's born here, but it says that event, like we're supposed to know how it relates. I wish it just told us, because as a jumping on point, how are we supposed to know what, you know, what happened in a comic in 87 or something? My thanks to Nick Vector and Diablo Frank for filling in the details. Nick also mentions an error, or maybe it's a change, in that the caveman kills the woman because, in the original story, because he got his hand bitten off by a saber-toothed tiger and he was angry about it. Ordway Ooh. pictures him with both hands. Didn't remember that or didn't know that. Well, why would we? It's a caveman in one panel of an origin story for Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was going, well, it was very prominent back then. Everybody knew this story. I wasn't reading Wonder Woman. Uh, I wasn't reading George <laughs> Perez's Wonder Woman. I, you know. Only occasionally, I did not know what this was innate of at all. Now we know. Whoa. David is Gutierrez says, hear me out. What if Hal Jordan is the perfect person to wield the most powerful weapon in the universe? Bland, limited imagination, and a lack of inspiration might keep the weapon in check. Do you want a Kyle Rayner, a man with a wild and brilliant point of view, an artist in charge? Do you want a military genius who can construct and deconstruct items on a whim like Jon Stewart with that ring? Or a person with unbridled determination like Guy Gardner in charge of something? No, you want oatmeal with a ring. Of course, the guy can't restart the universe. He's a doofus. <laughs> we would have had a very plain looking universe if Hal Jordan had had his way. <laughs> <laughs> of course we would, but I, I don't hate it. I don't hate this point of view. <laughs> and I mean, beige is uh, safe, you know, and Hal Jordan would be safe. Well, history hasn't borne that out. <laughs> uh, Chris Franklin says, in 1994, I was wrapped up way too much to notice how artificial this all seems. In fact, that was never really has never really hit me until listening to this podcast. I do recall wondering why they just didn't let Hal reboot everything, since that's essentially what needed to happen. And heck, I wanted the multiverse back, and apparently so did DC in the long run, because how many times have we gotten it back since? The kingdom gave us hypertime. Which 
is a multiverse in everything but a name. Infinite Crisis gave us a multiverse back for sure and certain, and if they didn't exactly know what to do with it for another few years, Final Crisis, The New 52, Rebirth, Doomsday Clock, and the most recent Metal series either reiterated the multiverse or gave us a brand new one. So here, the one time DC had a chance to pull that trigger in perhaps the most story-appropriate way possible, they swerved, only to regret it later. Editorially, anyway. And as you pointed out, it's all about editorial. I did love that fold-out timeline, though. Uh, Mark Baker Wright says, while I'm on board with the heroes not just letting Hal reboot everything on his own, I've always felt that writers needed to do a better job of telling us why just letting Hal do it was uh, wrong. As it was, it was a lot of, it's just wrong, as if we're already supposed to understand why. And Captain Entropy agrees. At this point, DC portrayed Hal as, at best, a callous, murdering sociopath. I think that's why Herodom Assembled did not want him to design the new multiverse. The deity of your choice or sheer random chance both looked like better options. I agreed with them when I read this, and I still do. The fact that he planned to bring everybody back made him no less twisted. It isn't okay to break someone's arm just because it will heal. And he also asked, Bass, you described Ollie... As very smart, I'm willing to learn. Based on what? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Is Green Arrow smart? Well, he, I guess he should be. I mean, he's, uh, I don't know at that time, but I mean, he's, that's a goddamn good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. what. What's his, uh, does he have like a degree at this point? You're the one that said it. You're on your own. He is leaning towards... You know, maybe he's not smart. He's talented. He can shoot an arrow. He can question stuff. I think questioning is a sign of being smart, but also listening is a, a sign of being smart. So I think he uh, he questions and he looks for answers. He just doesn't question just for the sake of questioning. So that might be why I think he's smart. Maybe because he's always uh, historically has been arguing a lot with Hawkman. And I despise Hawkman. Hawkman's the dumb one. Yeah. To throw in here, he, like at some point, he was making those trick arrows. You know, that's not a given. So uh, he does have like uh, gadgeteer chops, at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's he's creative. Yeah. I would give him a zero in fashion sense. <laughs> um, but I mean, he has at least watched or read Robin Hood. And he was built as a Batman clone. So at some point, he must have been as good a detective and, you know, that kind of character. It's it's probably why I think he's smart. Yeah. Because he's a Batman doppelganger. There you go. Diablo Frank says, such a striking cover in its time. Really stood out on the stands and the silver ink was deployed so tastefully. Definitely sparked the blank sketch cover movement. Smaller, cheaper pieces that you can put in a bag and board? The appeal to fanboys is obvious. I wonder how long it takes for people to notice how scarce a pristine, unmarked copy of nearly a 30-year-old key book with all the white covers routinely marred by convention sketches has become. Well, mine is still intact. You know, a lot of people never go to conventions or never get that chance or yeah, or want to do that. So I, I think there's probably a lot of zero-hour covers that are still pristine today. They probably overprinted that thing too. So <laughs> what else does he say? He says, uh, I picked up an issue of Comic Scene Magazines recently with an article on the event that spent pages explaining that Jurgens wanted to do an event that would patch up the holes left by Crisis. And a few months later, Legion editor Casey Carlson 
uh, came sniffing around for Legion inclusion in a crossover for the sales dump. Every indication was that this miniseries was plotted on a whiteboard or via a wall of post-it notes supplied by group editors. Yeah, if everybody like jumped on board, that's where you kind of like lose whatever original flavor it might have had. And about that fold-out timeline, he says, The modern creators had too much consideration for space and the previous half-century was given too little. Every year should be as packed as today. Uh, so that's an, an interesting point. Yeah, like today you've got characters in the anima does this and who gives a crap in the you know in the long run we know that <laughs> anima was not a growing concern but the uh, they probably didn't want to specify that certain stories had indeed happened uh, so that they might be able to retell them or contradict them later so that's why they kept it kind of vague for the early years I yeah think. i think vague is good sometimes yeah are we nerds that we need to know what every story, where every story fits? Are we those nerds, boss? <laughs> I'm not. And as a final wrap-up, Bradley Null recognizes the event was rough, but the DCU that came out of it was his favorite of all. Oh, well, that's a sliver of hope right there. And on that note, we have to mention that Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page, so if you like our content, please think about making a one-time or a monthly donation, the amount of which will allow you to unlock rewards. Get on the zero list at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, just like these fine folks did. They got on the zero list, that means they are going to escape the cataclysmic time wave that's coming from both ends of history. Jim Bao has been saved from seeing that first murder. With his own eyes, David Capoon has been saved from Hub City's dirty streets, no questions asked. Michael Bailey has been saved from the great darkness, and so has his Apocalypse clone. And Diablo Frank has been saved from the dreaming. In other words, just woke up. And that's a pun about his politics. A reminder that you can leave us comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also follow Fire and Water's Facebook page or on Twitter. The account is FW Podcast. You can even listen to this thing on Spotify. Maybe you already are. Next time on Zero Hour Strikes, Deathstroke, Flash, and New Titan Zero. <laughs>